Welcome to Scholastic Reads, our podcast about books, authors, and the joy and power of reading. I'm your host, Suzanne McCabe, Editor-at-Large at Scholastic. Thank you for joining us. This week, we're wonderstruck. We're taking you with us to the Queen's Museum to attend a special event honoring the panorama of the City of New York. The panorama is a miniature model of New York City that was built for the 1964-65 World's Fair. The exhibit plays a pivotal role in Brian Selznick's best-selling novel, Wonderstruck, and in the new movie adaptation directed by Todd Haynes. First, we'll talk with Brian about Wonderstruck and what it was like to see his novel come to life on the big screen. Later, we'll hear from Louise Weinberg, curator and archives manager at the Queen's Museum. She'll share some of the history of the panorama. Hi, Brian. Welcome to the program. Hi there. So happy to be here. It's a thrill to have you on our show and also to be here at the Queen's Museum with you. Thank you so much. So tell us first about the great movie Wonderstruck and how it came to be filmed partly at the Queen's Museum. Wonderstruck is based on my book of the same name. And I was writing a story that was half in pictures and half in words, but two, two separate stories. One, one story set in the twenties, that's all pictures about a deaf girl who runs away to New York uh, in 1927. And the story in text is about a boy who runs away to New York uh, in 1977. And the two stories weave back and forth and ultimately come together. And when I was writing the book, I wanted to fill it with things that I love in New York City. And one of my favorite things is the panorama here at the Queens Museum. And so I uh, was very eager to figure out how to work it into the story. And I had a character who, as a child, uh, would make paper buildings. And so I eventually realized that it would be perfect for her to have had the job when she grew up of helping to build the panorama here because it's a it's a, a city in miniature and so that connection seemed like a really good one to explore and that's what brought me to the museum and to learning more about the panorama could you read the section or a section from your book that is set at the panorama sure sure this is this is from the end of the story so not too many spoilers here but i think it'll give you a sense of uh, a moment that's happening here at the panorama and how the panorama is an important part of the story. So it's two characters who are talking to each other or who are communicating with each other. One is an older deaf woman who knows sign language. And the other is a younger deaf boy who just became deaf and he doesn't know sign language. So the only real way that they can communicate with each other is through written notes. Rose brushed the hair from Ben's forehead and wiped the tears from his cheek. Ben took the pen. But you said you met me before. If my dad didn't know me, how did you, he wrote. We're not at the end of the story, Ben. There's something else I want to share with you now, a secret. Rose paused and Ben moved a little closer to her, waiting anxiously for her to continue what she was writing. This panorama isn't just a model of the city. It's also the story of your father. That's why I brought you here. Ben looked out across the endless expanse of miniature buildings. 
he returned his gaze to the notebook where Rose continued to write. When I took the job here, I thought it would be fun to secretly personalize the panorama. So I collected things that had belonged to your father, little mementos from his childhood mostly, and I hid them inside buildings all across the model. Maybe there was a part of me, knowing his heart was weak, that wanted something of him to always be here. That's not how I thought of it at the time, though. I just loved your father and wanted to do this for him and for myself. When I told him about my little project, he helped me curate it and gave me more things to put into it. In a way, this model tells the story of your father's life in New York. It was like we were making our own cabinet of wonders. Ben remembered reading about curators in Wonderstruck and thought about what it meant to curate your own life as his dad had done here. What would it be like to pick and choose the objects and stories that would go into your own cabinet? How would Ben curate his own life? And then thinking about his museum box and his house and his books and his secret room, he realized he'd already begun doing it. Maybe, thought Ben, we are all cabinets of wonders. Thank you, Brian. The Cabinets of Wonders are really a fascinating story in and of themselves. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about them and about the origin of museums? Yeah, my husband teaches a class about the history of museums, and I've been interested in how museums began. And I don't think we stopped to think about where museums came from, but they really came from the instinct to collect things and to try to understand the world. And so, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years ago, uh, it was very dangerous and scary for people to go off and explore the world. So when they did, they always brought back with them uh, special treasures and rare objects and new types of plants and animals that they discovered. And so uh, people began to collect these objects and put them on display. And first they had these uh, pieces of furniture that were actually called cabinets of wonders. And then those cabinets grew into rooms and those rooms grew into buildings and those buildings grew into museums over time. Is there a connection in your story between curators of museums and let's say the characters of Rose and Ben who collect things as children? Yeah, I think we're, we're all connected in that way to, to this story and to the history of museums because I have a feeling that everybody listening to this podcast has some collection, has something that they love, that they collect, that they want to have around them. When I was a kid, uh, I collected dollhouse furniture and I collected certain toys and I collected little miniature glass animals. Uh, and now I have, I, I like collect collections. I have so many collections. I have collections of miniature Empire State Buildings, of glass eyes, of those little snow globes that people oh, yes. connect, collect when they travel. Um, and ev like everywhere you look in my apartment, there's a collection of something. I collect magic tricks. Um, and so I think that that desire to collect things is something we all really understand. And I think especially when you're a kid, when so many things are not in your control, having a collection is a way to control things. You can control and curate what you have around you, what you have that you, that you love. And so that is where I've started from and my uh, connection with collecting. And I wanted to put that into Wonderstruck and give that to Ben and, and to Rose as well. Ben and Rose are both going through enormous loss or they experience enormous loss as children. That was so resonant throughout the novel and throughout the movie. What in your own experiences helped you create such 
vivid and powerful characters? Uh, you know, I mean, everybody in some fashion has something to do with me in my life. And I'm not always conscious of it when I'm writing, but I sometimes can look back later and see there's a connection. Like sometimes it's very direct, like with Ben, like we were just talking about, I love to collect things. So Ben loves to collect things that very much comes out of a love that I had for that. But then sometimes it'll be unconscious or something. It'll, sometimes it'll be, it'll be something I fight against a little bit. Uh, if I'm afraid of looking at something that's more difficult for my life, like when I was writing the invention of Hugo Cabret, I was trying to figure out what happened to Hugo's father because I knew I wanted Hugo to live by himself in the train station, but I didn't know how he got there at first. And so it, I was thinking, oh, I want the dad to be, maybe he's the bad guy. Maybe the dad is, he drinks too much and he keeps Hugo locked up in the train station. So I was trying to figure out what happened to Hugo's dad. And the one thing I knew I didn't want to have happen was uh, for his father to have died. And I really fought against it. And I finally realized the reason I was fighting against it so hard was because my dad had died right before I started working on the book. And I didn't want to have Hugo deal with that because I was really sad. And then I finally realized after fighting against it for so long that that's the reason that I needed to give that experience to Hugo because I needed to write about it. And then once I gave that experience to Hugo and, and I figured out what the story was with his dad and how his dad died and that the loss of his father uh, was actually the, the center of everything that then happens to Hugo. And, it, and in a way, it helped me finish the book. But I didn't know that for the first year and a half that I was writing the book. I, I fought against it. So as a grown-up, I experienced that type of loss. I didn't experience that when I was a kid. But I write for kids. I, you know, I'm aware that I write for kids. But I don't really think about kids when I'm writing. I just think about writing. I think about the story. I think about what I want to have happen to the characters and so I think when I started writing Wonderstruck, it felt natural to carry through some of these same themes and ideas, but then explore them from a different angle. Certainly with Ben, it's so powerful. The story of his father figures so large in this story. Yeah. And, and Ben never met his father. And so, you know, when I grew up, my, you know, both of my parents were fine. You know, they were home. My dad was an accountant. My mom was a housewife. And they were good parents and I had a nice upbringing and a nice house with a nice backyard. But of course, when you're writing stories, writing things that are very nice will not remain interesting for very long. So readers probably notice that a lot of bad things happen to characters in books. And, you know, a lot of bad things happen to people in real life, too. And so I think it's important to let some of these things happen in the stories so that the reader can experience it through the character and maybe they can see themselves reflected in some fashion or their life, or they can see something very unlike anything that's happened to themselves in their lives. And so I think both of those are an important thing that books can do. Absolutely. In addition to the Museum of Natural History and the Queen's Museum, silent movies are also a big theme in your novel and in the movie. Could you tell us a little bit about that? I've always loved film. I grew up watching scary monster movies uh, on TV after school every day. There was a creature double feature uh, in New Jersey where I grew up and my friends and I would gather in, in my parents' bedroom where there was a, a good TV and we would watch these scary movies. And some of them were silent, like the Phantom of the Opera 
uh, with Lon Chaney, the original Phantom and the original, um, I think the original Hunchback was also silent. And so, so there's always been an interest and I'm distantly related to David O. Selznick who, who made movies. He made Gone with the Wind and the original King Kong. So I always felt like there was a little family connection, even though I was from a different side of the family. And so that love of film is something that very naturally has worked its way into my storytelling. And of course, movies are a visual medium. So much of the way you experience the story is through what you see. And in silent movies, it's all what you see. And there's a connection for me between that and the drawings in a book. So trying to make the drawings in a book reflect the way movies tell their stories has been something that's always been a challenge to me and something that I, I like exploring in the, in the books. Could you tell us also about the character of Rose and how she experiences silent movies? It's a very unique phenomenon. Yeah. Rose was born deaf and she's about 11 years old in 1927. And at the time, Education for the deaf was very, very bad. And there was a lot of shame around having a deaf child, a lot of shame around sign language. They actively discouraged deaf people from learning sign language. And most deaf people have hearing parents. And so the hearing parents you know, would, were not allowed to or didn't want to teach their children sign language. And of course, when deaf children did find each other, they communicated through sign language because that's what and they would teach it to each other. But there were true stories about children who were kept locked away in their houses who never learned any language very often because it was so difficult to communicate and there was so much shame around it. And I had heard some of these stories and I saw a documentary called Through Deaf Eyes about deaf history and the deaf and deaf culture where I learned a lot about uh, the history of deaf people and the deaf experience. And so I wanted to write a character who was born deaf at this time period, but who fought back and who escapes and goes and finds her place in the world and finds her people and her extended family. And so I did a huge amount of research and interviewed a lot of people. And one of the things I learned was that the coming of sound in 1927 to the cinema, which in the hearing world was celebrated as the big new technology, was a tragedy for the deaf community because deaf people could go to silent movies with hearing people and they would all understand the movie together. But when sound came, they were cut out. They couldn't experience it anymore and understand the stories. So I thought I would try to put those elements together and set the story in 1927 just as sound was coming in. You wrote the screenplay for the movie in addition to writing the novel. Tell us what changes or adaptations you made along the way. Uh, well, it was my first screenplay, which was very challenging. And I learned that the main thing was everything needed to happen faster. So in the book, uh, the story takes place, especially Ben's story, takes place over about a week in the museum. So in the movie, it all happens in one night. And Ben has uh, three or four clues as to who his father might be. And in the movie, there's a single clue. And it has to do with the way movies tell their story, the way you have to move through a story in a film. And you can take your time in, in movies. Like you've, We've all seen movies that go very slowly or, or linger in certain places. But the overall effect is that the story has to keep moving forward in a very direct way. And so that's what I was trying to capture in the screenplay. And what I think uh, Todd Haynes did, the director, which is really wonderful, is he actually allowed time to unfold 
in different ways so that there are parts where we do linger in the museum and time feels a little slower because the children are experiencing something that we want the audience to also experience so that that, so that we can take that in at a slow pace but then other places where things pick up and the narrative picks up and we move more quickly through time and so that was really fun to watch todd work with that What surprised you most seeing Todd's realization of your story on the big screen? Well, I've been a fan of Todd's since his first movie, Poison, came out in 1991. (laughs) And I've seen almost every one of his films. And he has a really wonderful sensibility to his movies. They're always very beautiful to look at. They're designed incredibly. They're shot really uh, beautifully. They're about people who are having a difficult time in society very often, people who are outsiders, people who are trying to find where they belong in the world. But he's never made a movie for kids. And so one of the thrills was to see Todd make a movie that really does fit into all of his other films in in really interesting ways, yet is completely accessible for young people, that it was really made for kids. And and I think it's a a movie that is unlike any other movie kids will see. It's told in a really unusual way. Half the movie is black and white and silent. Half the movie is color. But... I think the way you're caught up in the story and the way you care about the characters allows you to get into this in an interesting way. And so so being able to see my story through Todd's eyes has been one of the most amazing parts. I can imagine. What are some of your favorite scenes in the movie? I love the scene when Ben first goes into Times Square. And so, of course, Times Square is a very loud, scary dangerous place in 1977, but Ben can't hear. And so everything he experiences is through what he sees. And so what he sees when he enters into Times Square is this incredible explosion of color and light and different kinds of people and different kinds of clothing and buildings, unlike anything he ever saw in rural Minnesota, where he has lived his entire life up until this moment. And Todd chose a piece of music from the 70s that nobody in the movie can hear. Ben isn't hearing it. The people in Times Square aren't hearing it. The only people who can hear it are us in the audience. And it gives us a flavor for the funky, sort of exciting way that Ben might feel about what he sees. So that's one of my favorite moments in the film. One can certainly feel the presence of Maurice Sendak in the book Mm -hmm. and in the movie You dedicate the book to him. Tell us about your relationship with him and what you learned from him. Maurice had always been my favorite author and illustrator, Where the Wild Things Are. It was not a book I knew as a kid, but I worked at a children's bookstore after college, and that was really where I discovered his work. And if anybody wants to know anything about making picture books or really even telling stories... Just pick up where the wild things are and it will teach you everything you need to know about how to structure a story, how to make the story progress through the pages of a book, how to match the psychology of a character, what a character is thinking and feeling with what the drawings are doing in the book. So it was a hugely important book to to me. And even in when I was making The Invention of Hugo Cabret, I was thinking about the wild rumpus in Where the Wild Things Are, where you have four drawings with no text and you just move page by page through the wild rumpus. So I thought, what what if I wrote a novel where every couple of pages there's a wild rumpus 
that maybe goes on sometimes for 40 drawings. And so he's always been a big influence. And right before I started working on Hugo, I met Maurice at a book event, like a book signing. And I introduced myself, but I was really nervous. And so I asked his assistant if I could write a letter to him. And he called me on the telephone and we developed a friendship. And it was that friendship that inspired the invention of Hugo Cabret. It was advice he gave me that sort of made me feel confident that I could make Hugo. But at that point, I didn't really want to do anything or say anything publicly about my friendship with Maurice. It was just me and him. And so Hugo was not dedicated to Maurice. But when I started working on Wonderstruck, I checked in with him and I, and I wanted to do something more public. And so much of our conversations and so much of our friendship ended up in different ways with Wonderstruck as well. And so I dedicated the book to him and I think that made him happy. That's a very sweet story. <laughs> he was quite irascible. Yeah, yeah. He, had <laughs> Hilarious. A he had a reputation for being a little uh, mean, <laughs> but I, I, I think a lot of that was show. But he was so funny. Yeah, he was really, really funny. And also he's one of those people who everything he says is interesting. And so even if you're just joking around over lunch, you're thinking to yourself, oh, remember what he's saying right now, because it's fascinating and it's educational and really, really interesting. Speaking of interesting, the notion of telling the story of Rose without words is so compelling and unusual. And I wondered if there's anything you wanted your young readers to take away about the deaf community or raising their awareness or sensitivity about what people struggle with who can't hear. For deaf readers, I wanted them to feel like I had done my research and that I was presenting a deaf character respectfully and realistically. And I wanted them to feel like an aspect of their lives was represented believably. And for hearing readers, I wanted to give them something that maybe in a small way paralleled the experience of being deaf. So Rose's story is told visually, all with drawings, because if you're deaf, most of the way you take in the world is through what you see. Even your language, sign language, is a language that you see, a language that you look at, and that is, and that is looked at when you're signing. And so by having uh, her life entirely in drawings, it allows that visual uh, part of your brain to tell the story. And, and I thought that might work. And one of the greatest compliments I got was when I met Millicent Simmons, the brilliant deaf actress who plays Rose in the movie, who's never acted before. She's never been in a film before. And we found her in an online casting call and she just made us all cry in her video audition. And when I met her, she told me that she read the book a couple of years earlier in school and she really loved it. And she told me that she was really surprised when she found out the author was hearing. She thought the author was deaf. And, and, I, oh. and I told her that that is the biggest compliment anybody's ever given me. Without question. Oh my gosh. And I think if memory serves, I read that she really found Rose to be so brave and so courageous and being able to find her own life, her own place in the world, which is what Ben and Rose struggle with. And many, obviously, every we all kid, do. We, all do. <laughs> we all do. We all have to go out and find our own place. Yeah. Millie really related to the character. And Millie also is very political in her way and really uh, believes that her presence in this movie can show all kids, especially deaf kids, that anything is possible. A lot of times, uh, you know, deaf kids are told you can't do this, you can't do that, or people who have any kind of situation where other people think they're limited 
they they are told you can't you can't do certain things. And Millie's point is that her life shows that you really can do anything. Millie wanted to be a cop when she was younger. <laughs> and, and so, you know, she never imagined herself being an actress. But now she has this public presence where she can go out and say, no, this this is really what's possible. And so that's that's been great to, to be able to be part of the this platform that has given Millie a larger view of the world and, and, and the world is now able to see her and learn from her. I think you have an upcoming book, Baby Monkey, Private Eye. <laughs> yes. Tell us a little bit about that. Baby Monkey, Private Eye is a book about a baby monkey who is a private eye. <laughs> in case that's not entirely clear <laughs> from the title. And uh, it's a book that I made with my husband, uh, Dr. David Serlin. He usually writes books for grownups. And so this was his first book for kids. And we've been joking about baby monkeys for a long time. We like baby monkeys. Baby monkeys are really cute. And then one day we were thinking, what would be the funniest job a baby monkey could have? And somehow we thought a private eye, a detective, someone, a baby monkey who solves crimes. And so I mentioned this to my editor one day, never really thinking it was going to be a book. And her eyes lit up and she said, that needs to be a book. And so I went home and I said, David, guess what? We have to write a book called Baby Monkey Private Eye. <laughs> and so the book comes out in February and it's five different cases. So it's five chapters. It's a beginning reader. It's a 200 page beginning reader because apparently I can't make a book that's less than several hundred pages long. And he solves the crimes really easily because he's a very good detective, but he has a very hard time putting on his pants. So most <laughs> of the book is Baby Monkey trying to get his pants on. <laughs> All right, full disclosure, my producer and I got a copy of the book. We got our hands on it. We loved it. Oh, thank you so much. It was really fun to make. <laughs> so many extraordinary achievements in both the novel and the movie, Brian. Such a pleasure to talk with you. Thank you so much. Well, thank you so much. It was really great to talk to you. Now, we'll talk with Louise Weinberg of the Queen's Museum. Louise is a curator and archives manager who is an expert in the history of the Panorama exhibit. Welcome to the program, Louise. Thank you. It's wonderful to be here at the Queen's Museum in your element. We saw the Panorama, which figures prominently in the movie Wonderstruck and in Brian Selznick's novel. Could you tell us a little bit about that Panorama, which is a spectacular story? Well, the Panorama was the brainchild of Robert Moses, who had been instrumental in both the 1939-1940 New York World's Fairs and then the 64-65 World's Fair. And he commissioned Raymond Lester and Associates to build him a scale model of New York City and it, his requirements were very stringent. It had to be exactly to scale. And it was to be about 10,000 square feet, which was a massive undertaking for Lester and Associates. They had they were his uh, Moses's model maker of choice. So they had done many other projects for him, but nothing to this scale. And uh, it took 250 people over three years to build it. And it since they hadn't done anything like that before. They had to use a variety of resources to make the thing come alive. The labor was kind of divided up. There were men doing the more gross labor of laying out the large panels, these four by 10 foot panels 
Um, each one they covered with a kind of a fire retardant foam so that it would be safe. And they would put the panels on the wall and they actually projected geodetic maps on them and drew the contours of the land. And then once they had those formations drawn out, they would put the panels again flat and then they would actually grind the foam down to create the contours of the city, of the actual, the topography of the land, so to speak. And then the women, there were many women that worked for Lester Associates, and they would actually do the finer work. Uh, they were working from uh, Sanborn books, where, which are insurance maps, and they show every square block of the city. They show each property and its relationship to the buildings around it. And so they would refer to these books and they refer to aerial maps and they glued down the houses and they would, they had, as, as you could see in that book, the scrapbook we put together, that there were, there were bins of, of two story houses or six story houses. There were bins that had water towers in them and churches. And they would glue those, those structures down. All of the one story structures were actually created from a mold that Lester Associates designed, and they were injection molded. They were plastic. But everything else, everything that was like a three-story or a six-story building, those were all made individually. So it was, it was a, a massive, massive undertaking. And it was the kind of problem where if it was off, if the scale was off, that Moses would have rejected the project. And it, they were paid $630,000, which is millions today. It was something that consumed them at the time, but they, they were also working on other projects. And it was a phenomenal undertaking. And the, the, the whole idea of the city would be created, and then there was this lighting cycle that went along with it that would show the city going from day to night. And so... The, all of the park areas were painted with phosphorescent paint and all of the buildings, all of the skyscrapers in Manhattan, all the windows were painted with phosphorescent paint and there were black lights all around the perimeter of the room and this, this lighting cycle would go into effect, the lights would dim and all of those areas would glow green and it was magical. And this was part of the kind of wonder that Moses was interested in highlighting the city in this way, and Lester Associates was able to provide that for him. What an extraordinary story. The character of Rose works on the panorama in the novel and in the movie. What might her life have been like? Would she have gone to Westchester or would she have come here? Where would she have gone to do the crafting of those buildings that she did? That would have taken place in in Westchester. The people that were working down here were actually working on, as the panels were delivered down here, they were actually joining them together so that all the seams would meet and they were smoothing over those joints as, as those panels were introduced. In Westchester, she was probably a person who sat at one of those little tables and had her bins of buildings and her watercolors or the, the acrylic paints that they were using 
because as the buildings were placed, they would they would paint the colors of the streets to designate what's a street, what's what's a grassy area. And then they were gluing shrubbery down and, and adding cars. There, there were millions of little tiny cars everywhere. So she, she would have definitely been working up there. I see. For people who don't have the joy of seeing this and who aren't New Yorkers, seeing it as a New Yorker for me was incredible. What do you want them to know about the panorama? I think the panorama is such a special place. I didn't grow up here. I didn't see it as a child. I actually saw it as an adult when I came for a job interview here at the Queens Museum. And I was completely taken by not only coming to this location, seeing the Unisphere, seeing the park, but then seeing this incredible scale model that I had never seen anything of that magnitude. So that that sense that I carry within me is what I hope people can can feel for themselves. And I think people come with preconceived notions of what it is because they've read about it or they've seen pictures on the internet. But once you experience it, it is totally different. And the fact that it's 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 an artifact of the 60s. It, it's early 60s technology. It's paper and, and wood. But yet this new lighting design has brought a 21st century spin on it. And it's kind of the, the beautiful marriage of both of those points in time that are coming together in this. With a sense of wonder. <laughs> Thank you so much, Louise. It was oh, a pleasure beautiful. to talk with you. Thank you. Thanks so much again to Brian and Louise for talking with us. And thank you for joining us. To learn more about Wonderstruck and about the Panorama exhibit, check the show notes or go to scholasticreads.com. Is there a topic you'd like us to discuss? We'd love to hear from you. Send a note to scholasticreads at scholastic.com. Special thanks to producer Emily Morrow sound engineers Daniel Jordan and Chris Johnson, and music composer Lucas Elliott Eberl. I'm Suzanne McCabe. We look forward to sharing more Scholastic Reads with you next time.